Uh, my words will pass away, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. Uh, with that in mind, friend, let's hear from the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 9. Friends, hear the word of the Lord to us. He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you as we look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we love you this morning, and we ask that we would hear the very voice of Jesus himself uh, speaking to us through his word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, even now, we ask that uh, we would be found uh, to be like this man, uh, beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Lord, I pray that everyone hearing me, whether in person or online, uh, would leave today knowing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that name we pray, amen. So why do you think it is that so often it's religious people that seem so condescending or so judgmental in the eyes of the world? Uh, do you think it's that religion is just inherently judgmental? I mean, is that just part and parcel of religion? Uh, well, friends, I want to suggest to you that the number one job that I have in your life is making sure that you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's been often said that religion is man's attempt to please God, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's attempt to reach man. You see, religion is our way of doing good things or thinking right thoughts in order to atone for the bad things we've done or to be the good people instead of the bad people. But friends, but what if Jesus Christ came along and said, you and I, we're not the good people. In fact, you and I are often worse than we think, and we can't save ourselves. And there isn't a way to make our good outweigh our bad. What if we needed to be saved from the inside out completely? What if we needed to be so profoundly changed that we needed nothing less than to be born again from the inside out? Well, friends, this is the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks for this series, you'll know that I've been talking a lot about this thing called the kingdom of God. That is Jesus's main topic. He keeps going back to this thing called the kingdom of God. And what I want you to do is look right now at Mark. Well, hold on. Wait. Wait for it. Mark. Ah, no! Your pastor is technologically challenged. Well, trust me on this. Mark 1.14 says this. Oh, there it is. Uh, who has a red-letter Bible? Anybody here have a red-letter Bible? Red-letter Bible is this would be the first red letters in the Gospel of Mark. Right? This is one of the first things that Jesus says in his ministry. Notice what he says. Uh, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the what? The gospel, the good news of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand 
repent and believe in the gospel. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes we use religious language, things like, you know, gospel, but we don't always understand what those words exactly mean. Uh, You know, sometimes we say words like sanctification or glorification, and we're not really sure what we're talking about. But gospel is also one of those words that can sort of slip into our consciousness, but we don't always understand what the message of the gospel is, what's so good about the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, for many people, they think of gospel and they think of what? A genre of music, right? We think of gospel music. So what is it that is at the core of this message of the kingdom of God? And why does Jesus say, repent and believe the good news, believe the gospel? Well, I think this is one of the easiest ways to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and why he didn't turn the world upside down, he put the world back to rights. And it's embedded within this parable. So look with me down at at verse 9. Let's study this parable. Let's see if you can start to grasp the gospel I see explaining to you the message of Jesus Christ is the most important thing that I do in my life, is telling people this message. Notice what Jesus uh, is going to do and who he's speaking to. Look at verse 9. It says, he, that's Jesus, told this parable to some who did what? Trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Let's just pause right there, because already we're using big Bible language right there. Did you catch that? It says Jesus told a parable. If you don't know what a parable is, it's simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? This is not a literal parable story, right? The parable doesn't literally happen. It's just a story. It's two guys went into church. One guy was a jerk. One guy was also a pretty bad person, and one of them left forgiven, and one of them didn't. You see, that's how a parable works. It's said in this short way. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But notice right there that who is Jesus speaking to when he gives this parable. Why does Jesus give this story to begin with? Well, Luke tells us. Dr. Luke tells us right there in verse 9. It's to who? Who is Jesus speaking to? People who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated other people with contempt. You know, right there, we're asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to be righteous? You know, what does it mean to be righteous? That's, a, that's one of those Bible words, right? I mean, how often do you think about being righteous? Well, you know, if you want to understand what the word righteous means, simply ask yourself this. Are you a good person? Do you consider yourself a good person? And if so, why? And, you know, most people would say, well, I'm a good person. But, and then if, they would, if you would press them, you know what they would say? Well, you know, I don't know if I'm, I'm a great person, but I'm better than those people. <laughs> and you would immediately think of people that you may think of yourself as worse than you. In fact, that's exactly the corollary of somebody who is self-righteous. They deem themselves righteous. They are good people in their own eyes. But the problem is if you and I think of ourselves as righteous and, you know, very good people, there's an inherent logical conclusion, which is you and I need people beneath us that we think of as worse than us. Did you catch that? Jesus says they trust in themselves that they are righteous. And then what does he say right after that? What does Luke say? And they, how did they see other people? They treated other people with contempt. You know, what's shocking about this story, of course, is that Jesus is getting right to the heart of every single person. I mean, who here doesn't want to be a good person or doesn't think of themselves as a righteous person? And yet, Jesus says, if you do that, if you deem yourself good enough what happens is actually you look down on other people. There's this immediate corollary. If you think I'm good, well, chances are you're thinking, well, I'm not like those people. Have you met my neighbors? (laughs) 
that's often how we think. You know, there's a sense that deeming ourselves righteous is inherently competitive. It's inherently comparative, right? So I don't know who you would say you are better than, but I can think of some people, you know, they root for the wrong college football team, (laughs) right? Or they come from the wrong part of America. Whatever you want to say, there are people that we think of as beneath us. You know, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a, an amazing book called Mere Christianity. Uh, if you haven't read Mere Christianity, this should be your summer reading project. You should read Mere Christianity. And uh, in that book, he talks about the ultimate sin, according to Christianity. What's the ultimate sin? The ultimate vice is pride. And he, uh, he raises this interesting question, which is how is that religious people can be so proud and condescending? And how can we look down on others and be like Pharisees? C.S. Lewis writes this, he says, that raises a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I am afraid it means that they are worshiping an imaginary God. And then C.S. Lewis goes on, how do we know we're actually not worshiping an imaginary God? How do we know that we are turning away from pride? He says, luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. And then he says, the real test of being in the presence of God is humility. Now, I know I'm preaching to religious people right now, and this can seem very challenging, but this is exactly the point of the parable. Look down with me. What's the story? Look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple in Jerusalem, so they're doing a very religious thing. You know, in modern, if we were giving a modern-day example, it'd be like two guys go to church, right? Two men go up to the temple in Jerusalem to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, let's press pause right there. What do you know about Pharisees? What comes to mind when you hear the word Pharisee? Religious leader, uh, do you think of a good person or a bad person? Okay, well, Jesus' original audience, they would not think bad person. They would think what? A great person. (laughs) I mean, listen to what this Pharisee does. Uh, A Pharisee is somebody who is extremely religiously devout. They were at church always. And listen to what he says. He says, I thank God that I'm not like other men. You hear the comparison? Looking down on others. He says, I don't extort money from my company. I'm just. I don't commit adultery. You know, another way you could say this, I'm faithful to my wife. And I even, you know, I'm not like this tax collector. He fasts. How often does he fast? Two times a week. And he gives tithes of all that he gets. If you know the Old Testament, you know, they were only supposed to tithe uh, certain times over certain produce. Well, he just does the tithe on everything that he gets. You know, he goes above and beyond the law. You know, I was talking to some college students last night about this parable and asking him what they thought that meant. And one of my dear friends, uh, you may know him by the name Nathan, Nathan Moyer, he turned to me and he said, that guy kind of sounds like you. (laughs) And I thought, well, it certainly sounds like elder material to me, but just kidding. Love the elders, but I said, Nathan, you're exactly right. That's the point of the parable. We have to remember that in Jesus's audience, they would not scoff at a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a person that was extremely devout in their religion. They made up all kind of rules to live by. They would have been seen as um, moral examples, the kind of people that you would want your daughters to marry. And this guy, find me what this guy is doing wrong. 
I mean, look down at this passage. What does he do wrong? First off, where is this guy? Is this guy at the saloon? Where is he? He's in the temple. He's in the Jerusalem temple. And then what is he doing there? He's praying. And you're going to judge that guy, you jerk? No, he's at the temple. He's praying. And then what kind of character does this guy have? Well, he doesn't extort money out of people. He's, he's just, you know, so he's, he's a good employer if he employs people. He's a good employee. He's just, he's fair. He doesn't extort money. He's faithful to his wife. And then when, uh, you know, the Old Testament said you had to fast only once a year. Anybody know when the Old Testament says you have to fast? There's only one day. Anybody know? It's in Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. When the sins of Israel were placed on the scapegoat and it was sent out into the wilderness, right? There was only one day you were supposed to fast. You were obligated to fast. and It was the day of atonement. You know, atonement means that your sin is covered, right? So when you make an atonement, it's like I've sinned and now this thing is being punished and blood is being shed. That was the only day you were supposed to fast in the Old Testament. This guy, how often does he do it? Who's quick on their feet? How many times a year does this guy fast? Nope, not 104. 105, maybe, because of the day of atonement? I don't know. Yeah, 104. So 100 times more than he's supposed to fast. And then how often does he tithe? Way more. Way, you know, how often does he tithe? A, a bunch, and he tithes a whole lot more. You know, Jesus mocks the Pharisees at some point because they tithe mint, dill, and cumin, right? So when they would go to Trader Joe's and they would buy, like, you know, some, like, spices, they would bring, like, 10% of the spice to the priest. And the priest would be like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, you gave me, like, 10% of your, your dill for the week? Okay, thank you. Don't tithe 10% of your salt and pepper to me this week. We will, we will not know what to do with it. We're not that kind of church. Those poor priests, right? But all that to say, let's go back to this Pharisee. What do we learn about this guy? He's devout. Uh, he lives by a certain rule. He would have known his Bible. But he has a sort of a fatal flaw in his faith. Actually, there's something about him that makes shipwreck of his faith. And, you know, I think we would be, you know, if I were telling this parable, I would say, oh, this guy's just a knucklehead. He's just got some things to work on, but God, you know, will still forgive him. But do you think that's the point of the parable? Do you think that's what Jesus is teaching? Um, you know, you know, what, you know, like, you know, how babies are cute, you know? I mean, they go, they go through a weird phase, and then they get really cute after a couple months. You know, we just went through that. You know, now it's like really, really cute. Um, but at some point in development, babies develop what? Teeth. And then you go, oh, he's so cute. If you put your finger in their mouth, all of a sudden, they're not so cute. They got some teeth to them. It kind of hurts. And I think there's a sense that sometimes we treat Jesus like he's a little cute little baby. Oh, he's so sweet. But he's got some teeth to him. He's the baby with teeth, as my friend Mike Glodo used to say. And this parable has teeth, if you see it. It's not just a cute story. I mean, look at verse 14. What does Jesus, what's Jesus' uh, final assessment of this Pharisee? And Jesus says, I tell you, the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But to the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, this is a convicting parable for uh, anybody who uh, wants to believe that they have something like faith. It's convicting to me as a religious leader of my day. And it reminds me that uh, pride 
can actually shipwreck our faith, can it? And it's, I think what I would suggest to you, it's a failure to understand the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Uh, if, if, you can, if you can track, if you can understand this, if religion is man's attempt to appease God, um, what kind of grade do you think this guy's religion is getting? He's doing everything. He's fasting over 100 times a year. He's doing all of the right things, and yet Jesus says this guy is not justified. He is not right with God, and he doesn't understand grace. And the telltale sign is his pride and is treating others with contempt. You know, um, Tim Keller is one of my uh, favorite preachers, and uh, I've been shaped a lot by him. Uh, he pastored a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City for uh, over two decades. And he has this, a wonderful quote about the gospel and uh, this, is so, this is so worth grasping. He says, the Christian gospel, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet, I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think of more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. <laughs> the beauty of self-forgetfulness is what he called that. You see, friends, what's amazing about the gospel of grace is that it deeply humbles us, and yet it lifts us to heights we never thought possible. Uh, it's very true uh, that my friend Nathan pointed out that I am like the Pharisee. This is why this parable speaks so profoundly to me and why it should speak profoundly to every person in the room, because there is a way of doing religion that doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. And the telltale litmus test is, do we treat others with contempt? So if the Pharisee is the example of the guy who doesn't quite get the gospel, what do we learn about this tax collector? Well, look back at the parable. What do we learn about this tax collector? Look at verse 13. Jesus is making a comparison between these two men. Uh, verse 13 says, but the tax collector, uh, when you hear tax collector, do you think positive or negative? Negative, right? Yeah. Some of you know my mother is a tax collector, so be careful what you say about tax collectors. She's a baptized Presbyterian now for some of you who remember that. In Jesus' day, uh, it's, so, you know, just like Pharisees in Jesus' time were seen as, like, the really good religious people, tax collectors were seen as the really bad people. Who are they collecting taxes for, by the way? They were collecting taxes. Well, where is Jesus? Jesus is in the nation of Israel, but who actually controls the nation of Israel? Who's in charge? Rome. And so when Rome would come into your town, they would say, hey, we need a local person to collect taxes on all of you. And uh, fun fact, I have good news to preach to you, the gospel of Caesar. And the gospel of Caesar is now you are part of the greatest kingdom of all time, and you are now subjects and servants to the great king Caesar. Caesar is Lord. That's how they would talk. And of course, Christianity turns all those words around, and they say, actually, the good news of the gospel is not that Caesar is Lord, it's that what? Jesus is Lord. And his kingdom will never end. But all that to say, the tax collector would come along and he would go to your town and he would, you know, knock on your door and say, hey, I proclaim the good news of Caesar. You now are obligated to give X percent of all of your income to Caesar. But the benefit is you get to be part of this great kingdom. 
Now, how did tax collectors, though, make money? If they were collecting money from you, how did they make a living? They would take a little bit off the top from you, and that's how they would live. And so a lot of tax collectors got jobs because they could claim they would get more money from their neighbors than other people. So the Romans would maybe march into a town and say, okay, who, who thinks they can get 20% out of everybody? You know, maybe this kind of, you know, questionable moral character would say, well, I can get 21%. And, the, you know, they'd say, okay, who, anybody think they can get more? And then maybe somebody would say, I can get 22%. And then the Romans would say, okay, well, whatever you get beyond that is your income. So they were seen as traitors to their country. Uh, they were seen as morally compromising and uh, probably not worthy to step into the temple, Right? So they were both nationalistic, but also religious traitors, right? See why the baby has teeth? Why you got to have ears to hear? This is why uh, people wanted to put Jesus to death, right? This kind of stuff. So Jesus says, one of those guys, one of those guys, a tax collector, standing far off. Why do you think he's standing far off? Yeah. Why did, okay, here's a question. Why, why are visitors always sitting in the back of a church, you know? Fun fact, you got to come early if you want to get your seat in the back. You know, church is like the opposite of a concert, right? You're like, how do I not get closer? <laughs> right? i got to sit in the back. He stands far off, presumably because he knows what it's like to be an outsider. He knows he's uncomfortable with all these religious people. You know, he may look at the Pharisee and think, well, that guy's got it all together. I, meanwhile, do not. And, of course, you know, um, if he's listening... Uh, to the guy's prayer, he may hear his name referenced. You know, if he said, you know, because remember the Pharisee says, thank God I'm not like this uh, tax collector. Thank, good I'm a, thank, thank God I'm a good person, right? But the tax collector standing far off, can you picture that in your mind? This guy nobody really wants to talk to, standing in the back of a church. He stands at the back and he won't even do what? Lift up his eyes to heaven. You know, um, there's this funny fact. You know how I know you're really listening to me? There's two ways. One, your head is bowed. And two, you're looking at me. But it's when people bow their heads that I think they're really listening to me. Or they're asleep. But I like to tell myself it's the first. <laughs> I like to think that it's when people break eye contact, they're hearing me. I think the same is true for this guy. He won't lift up his eyes. But he beat his breast. Why, what is that? Why does he do that? It's a sign of what? Conviction. Conviction over sin. That there is no way that his good is going to outweigh the bad of his life. That there is no atonement that he can make. There's no blood he can spill that's going to outweigh all the things that he's done in his life. But apparently God has done something to him because he has the courage to come to the temple and try to be reconciled to God. And look with me at verse 13, because this is where it starts to get really fascinating. What's his prayer? In verse 13, he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But the amazing thing is if you were to go to the original Greek, which is the language the New Testament's written in, uh, and if you underline in your Bible, you should underline this, because the word right there for uh, merciful, you see that there, it says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word merciful right there is not the common Greek word for mercy. Uh, it's actually only used uh, two times in the New Testament. One other time is in Hebrews chapter 2, and the other time is here in this parable. And literally what he says, this is fascinating, is he literally verbally says, God be propitiated 
towards me. God, be propitiated towards me. And propitiated is a very complicated Bible word. I'm throwing a lot of Bible words at you. And this is why uh, most translations just say merciful, because it's easier for us to understand. But propitiation is the fancy word for atonement. So maybe it'd be easier to understand what this guy says is, God, may there be an atoning sacrifice for me. May there be a sacrifice on my behalf to reconcile me to you. I can't bring the atoning sacrifice. My good is never going to outweigh the bad. But God, would you be atoned between you and me? Would we be reconciled somehow in your mercy? Be merciful to me. And what does Jesus say about this man? He says, well, that's the guy who goes back down to his house justified. And why does he go down to his house? Anybody know? Why does it say he goes down to his house? Well, because if you were anywhere in Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem. And then in Jerusalem, you always go where? Up to the temple, right? Because presumably both of these guys, uh, one guy is trying to be very religious by his own good efforts. And this other guy is just trying to find God in his mercy. But they both are going up the mountain, right, to have some sort of spiritual experience. But only one of them leaves the mountain of spirituality actually reconciled to God. And the amazing surprise of the parable is it's who? It's the tax collector. So what are we supposed to understand or, or do with this story? Well, the story is shocking because it challenges all of us that we can live our entire life as very devoutly religious people and yet never quite grasp the grace of God, and to understand that we really aren't better than anybody. Uh, you know, I often think about it this way, like, w the way that I try to remind myself is I try to think I am, like, on one level in my life, paid to be a Christian, <laughs> and I still sin, like, all the time, and I'm literally paid to do this stuff. And so who's worse, like the person just living their life irregardless of God's word because they don't know God's word, or me who knows God's word in and out and yet continue to sin? Who's worse? I am. Or think about it this way. There was a guy named Paul, and Paul, in his testimony, said it this way. Uh, this is uh, some, hopefully familiar for a lot of you. This is Philippians chapter 3. He's talking about this difference between religion and the gospel, striving to please God by our good efforts versus knowing God's grace. Now, Paul says this, Indeed, if other people have reason to be confident in their own efforts, you know, that's confident I'm a good person, Paul says what? <laughs> if you think you're a good person, buddy, I am, more, I am better than you. <laughs> he says, listen to this, I was circumcised when I was eight years old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I even know what tribe I'm a part of. A real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the what? The Pharisees. Who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that early on I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless rubbish when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on what? 
my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, the way that you and I understand the gospel is we join the tax collector. And we say what? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we don't treat other people with contempt. That's the opposite of evangelism, by the way. (laughs) That's anti-evangelism. Instead, what we do is we grasp the gospel. Paul says this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Quite the preface to a statement when you say, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Friends, that's the gospel message. That was St. Paul's testimony at the end of his life. When he surveyed humanity and he was looking for the good ones and the bad ones, Paul put himself at the end of the line and said, of all the sinners, I think I'm the worst. I count myself as, as not better than anybody. And it's because the gospel had done this amazing thing because it had humbled Paul. Because it said the only atoning sacrifice that I can make is not my good works, It's not my blood that's spilled, it's what? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. He died for me, a sinner. And yet, amazingly, that doesn't give you a dour, you know, depressed way of life. Instead, what it does is it lifts you to heights you never thought possible. You have nothing to prove to anybody. Christ accepts you and loves you, and he has good things in store for you. In fact, he's going to give you the kingdom of God, and you will never die. It lifts you to hopes that you never thought possible. You see, friends, this is, I think, the message of the gospel. So let's go back to maybe my my opening question, if I can just finish up. You know, why is it you think that, uh, you know, sometimes people think of religious people as very judgmental and looking down on others? Well, because if you think the way that you approach God is by doing good works and being better than other people, well, you know, buddy, your tally mark is going to be a lot higher than everybody else. But friends, but what if there was no tally mark system that could atone for your sin? What if you needed the mercy of God alone? And that humbled you. You know, Martin Luther explained the gospel this way, and it's a beautiful analogy when we come to the communion table. He said, we are all mere beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Have you ever served at a soup kitchen? Have you ever served at a Medford Gospel Mission, fed the poor? Have you ever fed a beggar? They're very humbled in that moment, right? Because they feel very exposed. You know, they know that you know that they're in the beggar line, right? They're in the poor line. And Martin Luther says that's the mentality of a Christian. It's profound humility. It's a beggar saying, you know what? I know where the bread line is. Now, friends, I hope you understand the gospel. I hope you know that Jesus Christ died for your sin. And I hope you know that you know that. And I think the way you know that is what C.S. Lewis said. When you approach God, do you feel high and lifted up like this Pharisee? Or do you beat your breast and say, thank God that God was merciful to me, a sinner? Now, friends, that's an invitation to hear the gospel. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed sinners. Uh, Father, we pray that each one of us would be more aware of that 
And Lord, that we would rejoice that you became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, that we might inherit the kingdom. And Father, as we prepare to take communion in this service, Lord, we pray that we would know that we are beggars receiving bread from your line and that it came at a great cost. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would understand that the atoning sacrifice for our salvation was earned on the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray that that would humble each one of us and also lift us up. Lord, I pray that this would be a community of believers that spreads the good news of Jesus to people who desperately need to hear it. Uh, Father, would you save us uh, from religion and um, actions that would seem to justify ourselves? And Lord, would we stake our souls only on the grace of Jesus Christ? In whose name we pray, amen.